Hello and welcome back to What Is Your Working Class, the podcast dedicated to exploring the variety that exists in working classness. And today I'm joined by the brilliant Mandy Clare. To stay up to date on all new episodes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at What Is Your Work One and on your chosen podcast provider. Thank you very much and hope you enjoy the episode. Hey Mandy, how's it going? It's going good. Thank you. Hiya. Glad to hear it. Whereabouts are you at at the moment? Uh, so where I live in Cheshire. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I, I grew up on the Wirral, which is in between sort of Liverpool, Wales. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Liverpool and all my family are from Liverpool. But I've also spent a few years living in Derby when I was younger with my little girl. We were there for about four years um, and I'm in Cheshire now. So, yeah. What made you move to Cheshire in the first place? Well, so when I finished my degree, I just ended up moving back to the Wirral. I was I was going to do a teaching English as a foreign language um, in Nottingham. Um, and then sort of another opportunity came up. It was actually a volunteer opportunity for Oxfam in, in the Liverpool campaign's office. Oh, nice. so it wasn't even a paid role, but it was. It just felt like a start in the kind of area that I was interested in. So I moved back up to do that. And yeah, so. So I suppose the best way to start this would be asking, what is your class background? Well, um, I'd say it's definitely working class. My dad was a deep sea diver, so he made decent money, but that's kind of, they were all working class men that were on the rig. You know, there wasn't any middle class men that chose that as a career because the money that you get for doing that job is really danger money. Mm. And it's like being in prison, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you kind of banged up for a number of weeks and it has impacts on your health as well you know ear infections and, and various other risks that you take as well so um that was what my dad did but my dad was really smart um he didn't go to grammar school his sister did they were from a council house background and he always said to me you know the key to everything is education and he got me some books when I was sort of 11 plus exam age um and said you know have a go at this and they were the reasoning papers that we used to do which I never got I never really understood them but anyway mm. I didn't think I'd, I'd pass but I did look through these books I didn't have any help off anyone because no one in my family really understood them either but somehow or other I, I managed to get into grammar school so I, I got more of an insight into class really firsthand from going to grammar school because most of the kids there were middle class mm. And they lived in, you know, detached houses. They had private tuition. They took part in after school stuff. They went on the school trips and stuff like that. There was only one other girl that I knew in the school who was on free school meals. And in those days, it used to be obvious, you know, kids who were on free school meals used to have a token and <laughs> it, was, it was dealt with in a, in a fairly obvious way. So it was uh, hard to even hide that you were different. Yeah, so I, I, I got a vague awareness of class unfairnesses through that, but I couldn't really make sense of them until I studied sociology when I was a little bit older. Hmm. Um, but my stepdad was a car mechanic. So, you know, he was self-employed. So by a Marxist analysis, if you took it strictly, he would be part of the elite. You mm. know, he wouldn't be part of the working class because he owned his own business. But he was skint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we were, you know. So, yeah. So, so yeah, I'd say I'm, I'm working class. I think class has affected me more than my gender, for sure, even though mm. that affected me a lot um, in terms of what opportunities were available. And for me, class is about what opportunities are available, the hidden and less obvious advantages that people from middle class and uh, more affluent backgrounds have. Very often, they're not themselves aware of them. 
and uh, there's no reason that anyone should be ashamed of them certainly because no one chooses what level of affluence they're born into but it's those things it's the it's the accessibility of power voice agency um influence those kinds of things are not available as available to you if you're from a working class background so mm. so yeah I, I think i'm working class on that basis yeah definitely i can it's very interesting because everybody i've been talking to has such a a different history but it's all sort of of this idea of for want of a better term precarity of there being uh not a, a comfort in knowing that you are secure and the ability to see into the future and be able to plan for the future mm-hmm. would you say that you came to realize you were working class when you were studying sociology and then looking back at your previous uh, experiences yeah, I mean, I, th- I think one of the things, one of the dangers of us not talking about class is that kids at school, if they're working class and they're in a predominantly middle class environment, or even if they're not, they're aware that they're, that there are differences. They wouldn't put the word class on it, you know, mm. but they're aware that there are differences and teachers naturally you know will normally favor and give more attention to the kids that appear to be more on the ball or that appear to be more in tune with what they're trying to teach you know so all of those like hidden advantages at home maybe there's private tuition or maybe their own te- their own parents have come from a teaching background or they've they've been in higher education or or they have access to cultural learning, you know, in their spare time as a family, like all of those kind of hidden things. Maybe their parents have got a bit more time and got their head together through a little bit less stress of that survival instinct, you know, to actually help them with things and stuff. Or So they will be more attentive maybe in the classroom or they'll be more on the ball and they'll be more like hand in the air as soon as the question gets asked and stuff. Well, that naturally is going to please the teacher because they don't want to feel like they're standing there wasting their time, Hmm. you know. Um, So those kids get more attention and that's actually been shown, you know, sociological studies have been done that have shown stark differences in how much time and attention middle-class kids get from teachers um, than working-class kids do. I mean, it might have changed a little bit now that we've got more working-class people, you know, who have become teachers themselves, but nevertheless, they've all got targets to meet. So I think kids are aware and they internalise it. Working-class kids internalise. All kids internalise. When things go, go wrong or when they feel like they're not measuring up, or even when their parents break up, you know, they internalize it, they find it as a fault with themselves, they feel mm. it as a fault with themselves. And I think what's empowering about things like, or what used to be empowering about things like sociology is that then you get to see these various different studies that show that actually it's not, it's not the individual kid's fault, there's a whole class system there and it takes it away from being a personal failure to oh okay that makes sense you know that explains why some kids do really well and they seem to be geniuses (laughs) you know and the other kids feel as if they're lacking and they feel a little bit disengaged and maybe they give up on themselves a little bit you know you can understand why that happens it perpetuates the class system that we don't talk about it and that we don't acknowledge some of these really valuable studies that have been done and seem to have been buried, you know, but sociology, it helps you systematize it, it helps you understand it, it helps you depersonalize those differences. The downside is that it makes you feel quite angry, mm. but it's not discussed more and acknowledged more overtly. And in the past, you would have somewhere to go with that. I'm not sure working class people do anymore. 
because things have changed within the left, things have changed within the unions. So, yeah, that, that that's sort of the situation that we're in. But I, yeah, I, but I couldn't, I knew that things were different with me, with my family, with our home, with, with our culture even. But I didn't, I didn't know that class was the word that applied to that difference at the time. I want to talk about the class activist website, but I think there's something that is possibly more relevant to what we were just talking about of the education and how when you're in school when children are in school they may not they do not have the language of class in order to realize the differences that may exist Mm -hmm. how do you think we could bring discussions of class and the complexity of class into education I don't know it's a really (laughs) you see when people become more aware of their class disadvantage, that presents a threat to the social order. <laughs> so mm. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, I, here's an interesting thing, right? If you, Akala, if you ever listen to him, mm. um, he talks about these, uh, what were they called? Black Saturday School or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I remember from a, a Natives. Yeah, right. About it, yeah. That's it, yeah. So that, I mean, that really interests me. The fact that he he can talk about class from a fairly objective perspective because he understands the power, you know, of social class disadvantage. As with race, you know, he knows his he knows his black history inside out, and because his generation of elders, if you want to put it that way, they made sure that the kids knew about that. They weren't going to get that education in school their self-esteem was going down the nick you know black kids were and when I say black I'm you know with capital B I'm talking about that as a political term Mm. um yeah rather than as a color those kids they were they were feeling their self-esteem was really suffering because they were obviously falling behind in school they were treated differently by teachers they could sense that there was something not right and sometimes that was overt and sometimes it was more subtle Mm. but but like these thousand tiny cuts, you know, were happening. And I think that that generation made sure that their kids had a proper black social history to stand them in better stead, really, to be able to debate these points, feel confident about who they are and recognize that this wasn't a personal failing. And, you know, there was a whole group of people there to support them, to say this shouldn't be something that you're taking on yourself in terms of your own self-esteem. You can be proud of who you are. Um, here are the reasons the clear reasons why you might be at a disadvantage within the classroom and it's nothing to do with your ability or your willingness to work hard or your intelligence and it's like understanding that social history and context is something that's completely missing within any educational sphere and as working class people it's hard for us to provide that for our kids because I think we've been robbed of it ourselves it's it's Mm. kind of dissipated you know um being working class, working class culture has been so denigrated by mainstream media. It's like now who wants to associate with being working class? It's just a few older people who remember what class discrimination is about and recognize that it actually still happens. Even though the nature of work has changed, it still happens. It still holds kids back. It still damages their self-esteem. But it's been airbrushed out of our conversation. And, and I think that's really sad. And if, if that's really the reason why I've put the website together is because I know there are people out there who, and mainly it, it tends to be people who are from working class background who've done that thing that you're not supposed to do. And they've crossed that class barrier. Well, they're not crossed, mm. the, crossed the class barrier, but they've kind of 
somehow or other ended up in a, in a middle class dominated sphere with some status, you know, and some better understanding of how class works. These tend to be sort of working class academics. So, you know, I, I, these are people who understand how class works. They feel angry about it. There's nowhere to go with it. There's no community around it. One way of trying to reignite a conversation around class might be to get those people together and make a start there, you know, and it's, it's kind of a long shot because it's been so suppressed this conversation but it just feels <laughs> yeah. it just feels like it's it's a place to start it's one place to start there's a lot more that needs to be done if we're going to get anywhere with it and try and limit the damage that's done through not discussing it yeah i mean the class activist website it's incredible how much work is on that website and how much detail there is i mean a huge congratulations to yourself Thank and you. is there a team or is it <laughs> <No>. <laughs> is it just you that is yeah. insane I've got to say because it's it covers so much ground it talks about working class art the experience of working class spaces it's just it's just brilliant thank you for making it a thing <laughs> thank you thanks thanks a lot it's really nice of you to say that not at all and something that came up I was reading through a number of the articles again recently and the idea of working class spaces and I suppose it's going back to that discussion of having this community education in a way of having a place where older working class people can tell the younger kids, OK, well, this is what class is. This mm-hmm. is what our experiences uh, was and how it may change for you. But there was an article recently that talked about how middle class people were maybe latching on to a working class identity to validate themselves yeah how could we avoid working classness becoming another aspect of identity politics Mm. I think that's a really good question and it's something that I worry about a lot Mm. so uh, because of my involvement with the Labour Party I mean I did this survey it's on it's on the website just recently I was just curious and I found a free platform you know for, for running surveys through and they do like really basic analysis of the results as well which is dead handy mm. but you get you get the um, Excel sheet and the CSV and everything as well so you can go into more of an analysis yourself if you want to um, and I have done and it's like most of the people who completed it are from working class backgrounds you, you can kind of see that because most people told me what their actual job was and what their family background was like and and stuff like that so you can kind of see you've got pretty solid it's only a small sample but it's pretty solidly working class mm. and I asked about how people's class background had influenced their politics and almost all of them said that it had 100% influenced them and that they were left and there mm. was quite a high percentage of those that were involved I, I didn't ask the question are you actively involved in, in left politics? And that would have been, I'm learning from this because it's like a little pilot thing. I'm yeah. learning as I go. It's like that thing, you know, you, you got to get started even though you know you're not. And I'm oh, not completely. an academic, but it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so, but there was quite a high pr- proportion of those people who said that they felt alienated within the left. Um, and that's mm-hmm. definitely something that's that's happened, you know, however you want to describe it, whether as gentrification or col- colonization is a slightly unkinder word. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. about using it because of obviously the sort of race connotations of, of, of the history of that. I don't want to sort of undermine that. But yeah, like it, it's become a very middle class space, all of the left, not just within the Labour Party. But because I think a lot of the people that are involved in the left 
who are middle class, they're well read in terms of their marks. Well, a lot of them are. And it's like, but well, not well read, they're aware of marks, but they're not aware that Marx talked about the petty bourgeoisie and the role that they play in sort of blocking the emancipation of the working class just by being there, just by having that privilege and protecting it mm. for themselves and their families. You know, and I think a lot of that within the middle class, it happens subliminally. They don't realize that they're doing it. So it's not a blame thing. It's just that if you have privilege, you can't always see it yourself. And no one wants to be the family that's going to be downwardly socially mobile. So you do what you can to protect yourself and your own. Mm. Inadvertently, that disadvantages and blocks out, you know, someone who's already at a disadvantage trying to sort of break through. So, so yeah, I think they act as a kind of protective buffer for elites without realizing it. And I think that Marx pretty much did describe that. But when middle class people on the left rely on a Marxist analysis of class, the only bit that they seem to acknowledge is that if you work for an employer, if you're not the owner of the means of production, if you sell your labor in order to exist, then therefore you're working class. And that's, it's such a broad definition. And if it doesn't acknowledge the really critical role that the middle class inadvertently in a lot of cases plays in blocking working class emancipation i think it's problematic and it's it's partial so yeah i mean like the the, the spaces that used to they they were never they never belonged to the working class but the working class used to feel they had a political home there mm. they've now been commandeered by middle class people and percentage of Labour MPs that used to be from working class backgrounds, I think it was 1951, was um, something like 37%, was it 47%? It was, it was quite high. Mm. It was lower than the percentage of people that were from manual routine working backgrounds at that time, but nevertheless, it was an underrepresentation in terms of the population, but it was still like now it's 3%. You know, so, so 97% of MPs within the Labour Party are either middle class or affluent. 97% within a party that's a socialist party that's there for the emancipation of the working class. And you haven't got, you haven't got people who have first-hand experience of precarity and of class discrimination helping to shape policy or being the public face of that socialist party. So it's it's like where do working class people go in order to in order to have any influence? It is insane thinking that the Labour Party has only got 3% of MPs who are from working class backgrounds. It seems like a very strange shift and I suppose we could attribute that to new Labour and the neoliberalisation of politics of making it almost focused on individual individuality. Yeah. But I mean how how did you become uh, involved in politics? Well, I think I've always had an interest because, as I said, I I studied sociology. I was lucky because I just fell into that. I was a teenage mum, like living in a bedsit in Birkenhead when I started. And I had no confidence, but I was on benefits in a bedsit with a little one. And I thought, oh, my God, like it was it was a Christian charity place. So it was all teenage mums, all banished Mm. women. <laughs> in this place, and you know, you weren't allowed to have a boyfriend to stay over if you had one, and it was kind of judgy. You couldn't control yeah. your own heating system, even. You know, it was like oh, boiling God. hot most of the time. <laughs> couldn't turn it down, um, so you'd have the windows open all the time. But yeah, so I, but I, I got a job because I thought, oh Christ, I can't handle this. I'm going to have to do something, you know, for me and for my daughter as well, because I know where this is going. I was surrounded by like friends that were into drugs and 
I just knew where it, where it was all heading. So I, mm. I got a job, but my job didn't pay enough money for me to, and I had a number of weeks to wait for housing benefit and stuff, and I couldn't pay my rent. So I had to leave that job and go back on benefits. So I thought, well, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> so mm. I went to, I went to um, get some careers advice, and the bloke said to me, you can't really. What are you going to do that you can fit around a baby? You know, you can't. So, and I thought, well, I'm interested in social. Maybe I can do social work. I might be able to do something good with the experience I've got of being on the, because it felt like being on the outside. It's like watching a merry-go-round that yeah. you're not on. You know, that's what that feels like. And so I, I, I didn't know what to study for social work. So I just saw sociology on the thing and I thought, well, I'll apply for that. So I went and I thought I was stupid that stage I thought it must be because I'm, I'm in this situation but anyway I did it and I, and I got a good result on my first essay so I kept going with it um, so that was kind of my I became interested in left politics and theory at that point class politics and theory um, and then I got a good great I only did that one A level but I got a B in it <laughs> and that I, I managed to use that to blag my way into university and I did a degree in um, it was called third world studies so that's All right basically looking at development you know overseas development so and it's basically looking at in the same way that sociology looks at the class system or it used to look at the class system in this country mm. and diff various different countries in America as well and how it keeps certain people in certain positions in terms of their access to power and and wealth and well it well it looked at that on a global scale as well so that was good and then and then I I didn't really get actively involved until Corbyn um, was elected the leader of the Labour Party so I always voted Labour I was always involved in working in you know I managed a domestic abuse project I managed a family support project in Birkenhead when that was you know the number one on the multiple index of deprivation worked all through that early Blair era with the Shore Start centres children's centres and so on and so I had an interest and, and it was part of my job I was involved in social projects you could say social justice type of work but I, I didn't get actively involved until Corbyn got in because I'd given up on it and I didn't think there was any chance of any kind of meaningful left resurgence in the country I thought we'd gone too far mm. down the neoliberal road with and the culture that goes with that you know which it reinforces it was so ingrained I just thought there's no there's no coming back from this and certainly not for the working class and when when Corbyn became the leader I had a lot of hope and I turned up to momentum meetings and other things like that expecting to see some working class people like me who would be like yay yeah <laughs> but, <laughs> it's happening it's happening but left it was, politics is more left now <laughs> yeah definitely and and there were some but predominantly I would say it was middle class people who who define themselves as working class because they've taken that reading of Marx that right. I spoke about. Yeah. yeah, that was what I found. Nevertheless, I still thought the policies were great. And I thought, well, I'm going to fight within the Labour Party to get a better representation for working class people. And that's something that I'm still doing. I don't know. I don't know whether it's ever going to succeed within the Labour Party, but if it succeeds in any sense in getting a conversation going again, then that, that's worth doing, I think. Mm. Do you have those conversations with uh, these middle class people who use the Marxist idea of what working class is and say, mm. well, do you actually think you're working class? Because <laughs> I, I've got an entirely different experience and I'm curious and actually question how they see themselves. Uh, 
I yeah, it's not a popular conversation. No. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you start with that? Um, <laughs> Great icebreaker. Are you sure you're working class? <laughs> yeah, it's really, really difficult terrain, and I have been yelled at at certain points by people who are her- horrifically offended that I have upset their perception of themselves as working class. I don't like to challenge people head on you know I I just like to get the conversation going and get people thinking I have had arguments on Facebook they never end well Mm. I've lost friends on Facebook over (laughs) this I refuse to stop talking about it because I feel it's an essential conversation it's not fair for people who don't have that that level of disadvantage to claim that they do it it really denies that experience you know, and the implications of that experience. And you wouldn't do it with any other form of discrimination. So you wouldn't, as someone who's, you know, white, claim to have discovered, to have um, (laughs) experienced racial Mm. related disadvantage and and discrimination. Same, you know, as, as a man, you wouldn't claim to understand or have experienced what it is as a woman to grow up in the world with all of that all that goes with that all the historical and physical and sociological and other cultural all of those barriers that go with that you can't claim to know what that's like unless you've lived that Mm. so why is it okay for people to do that with class because it's dangerous really if if you as I said, if if we don't have the class conversation, what you have is generations of kids growing up feeling that they are individually inadequate and to blame for their relative failure, you know, in comparison with working with middle class kids. And they don't, it's not made visible to them all that goes into a middle class person's apparently, you know, straightforward route into success. And it's important that we that we talk about that. And and I don't I don't want to blame middle class people because as a white person, if I never was willing to listen, you know, if I wasn't if I didn't have if we didn't have people who are discriminated on the basis of their race willing to speak up and challenge, you know, and say, hang on, you don't understand this terrain. I wouldn't know. I'd be oblivious to my white privilege, you know, so I don't want to blame people. Culture doesn't encourage us to think or talk about class. And nobody wants to feel that a big part of the reason why they're successful is a class system rather mm. than personal genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's difficult, isn't it? You know. <laughs> and completely. I think a lot of it is to do with the, um, the issue of how to define class. Because mm. there's, there's a quote that I really love that is... Um, uh, it's not actually attributed to any specific person. It's in a book and it's described as, an, I think it's somebody, an Irish person in a bar. And they describe class as, you know what it is, but you don't know how to describe it. Mm-hmm. And that is such a, I think that's one of the better ones in describing class because it is sort of, you get it, but you don't quite know what it is that makes it working class because class is a relationship and it's to do with the intersection of all these different things that are in society to do with your yeah. relationships with your parents with your siblings with your work with where, where you live and I think a lot of people and a lot of confusion about class is because it is so varied that for a lot of people it is quite hard to identify it yeah I, I know there's um 
I think some of the confusion for me, okay, I'll just talk about it from my point of view. I think, because I've been rereading, um, you know, The Social Class in the 21st Century, that, yeah. that book by Mike Savage. And uh, Mike Savage headed up that, the team that did the Great British Class Survey. Got yes, <laughs> you've got your, yeah, <laughs> of course. It's, I'm it's, right it's, my library of, of I mean, working class books. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got a library of them. I, I, I um, It's great. It's got so much detailed information in it as well. But they... Some I don't agree with all of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it misses some important things out as well because it talks about place and it talks about cultural capital and it talks about income. It talks about how work's changed, it talks about employment and stuff. It talks about university, which is really interesting as well. Mm. It talks about social mobility, it talks about your culture and your social life and, and what you do and stuff. All education as well, all of those things are relevant. But it doesn't talk about who are the gatekeepers and who are the official sort of face, public face, and who are the policy shapers within the higher echelons, for example, of the Labour Party, of politics, of left mm. politics, of any politics, of academia, of media, which shapes our culture, you know, has the power to shape our culture and how we think about ourselves, about class, about politics, about everything. Uh, within the law, you know, it doesn't talk about where are the working class these days compared to the old days within mm. any of those spheres? And what difference does that make to how society is shaped? You know, And I think that's a huge conversation that's missing from that study and from that book. Um, and that's the conversation that's most meaningful to me about class, mm. I think. All of those other things are interesting. You know, like I said, we can, we can go into great detail studying about education and higher education we have done we know that you know if you're a working class graduate and you've got exactly the same degree and grade as a middle class graduate that you're going to earn around about 17 percent less throughout the rest mm. of your life than that middle class graduate and we have to be able to put those things down to you know x y and z so connections social capital cultural capital what you brought into the party whether you were, had benefited from years of private tuition at home or you'd, mm. you'd been to a public uh, private school or whatever all of those things are important but I think to me what's most interesting is what's happened over the last 20-30 years in terms of the gatekeeping of these shapers of society the law politics culture media academia in all of those positions that really count, that have an influence on policy, that have an influence on what gets studied, what gets discussed, how it gets talked about in the media, etc., the gatekeepers are middle class or they're privileged, and increasingly the working class have disappeared from those spheres. They've been smeared and denigrated, looked down upon, laughed at, um, shamed, you know, so that no one even, an increasing number of people don't even want to associate with being working class anymore, even mm. though those disadvantages are still just as much there as they were before, if not more so because of the fact that they've been squeezed out of those those arenas. So yeah, I, if I was going to look for an, a perfect definition of class, or if I wanted to have the perfect conversation about class, what it means and why it's a problem and why we need to discuss it more, it would be where are we? What's happened? Why have we been squeezed out of those spaces? And mm. who's measuring that? Who's prioritizing that? Because to me, that's, that's what shapes your class. It's your, and that's what describes your relationship to power, your ability to change things, your ability to have your voice heard and your experience heard. Mm. 
and, and to make sense of it because like even oh, with yeah. the study of sociology you know if you talk to working class sociologists now they'll tell you well it's not it's more about sort of identity politics than class these days class is a very small part of the sociology curriculum so and shrinking so it's very strange I mean can you think of say for somebody listening to this who has never read anything that about class can you think of a good book which gives a good enough depth so that people could go oh okay this helps me understand this a bit better no no (laughs) can you in thinking about class and current day not at all there's a book by uh richard sennett called the hidden injuries of class which is an american uh, perspective of class yeah provide some interesting stuff but again it's sort of the historical idea of class yeah but I think we are in need of a a good solid I don't I, this would probably be a series of books in order to cover the entire yeah. variety as you were saying of law of culture of yeah. well, culture as in media um of politics of class after neoliberalism and I don't know who's going to do it but <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we could get a collaboration together. Yeah. I'd be up for doing that because Deirdre O'Neill, um, Dr. Deirdre O'Neill, she, mm. you, I think you've been in touch with her yeah, as well. Yeah, I talked to Deirdre uh, recently. Yeah. Well, she's she has kickstarted this new journal, which is the Journal of Class and Culture. Mm. There's loads of working class academics who are just isolated and fed up because they've got (laughs) insight into class, but no means of kind of collaborating around it properly in a meaningful way. There's no community around that or of support for them, you know, because they find Mm. themselves in these in this sometimes quite hostile terrain. Anytime you're a middle class person within a predominantly working class situation wanting to talk meaningfully about class expect it to get hostile really really fast Mm. that's not to say we should stop talking about it you know but I I agree I mean I've spent years years and so much (laughs) money looking for the perfect book that goes yeah here's what it is yeah I mean you know I think when we talk about the the hidden uh that, that hidden injuries of class that sounds really interesting but mm. you said it takes a historical idea of class and I think like there is also confusion around that because sometimes people say well I mean this new NIP party the Northern Independence Party mm. they've got um what is it they've got like flat caps and you know lurches and, and stuff yeah. as part of their identity it's like that was always really a bit of a cultural generalization about Mm. what it is to be working class. I mean, yes, the nature of work has changed, but it hasn't always been Northern, you know, classes. You can be working class in London. If you look at London as an affluent city compared to other cities, well, you have to take into account the London waiting in pay Mm. for one thing. But then if you dig deeper and you analyze, which Mike Savage has and their team has done, you know, the inequalities within any city, it's kind of the same. It's the same all over. You know, mm. you're still living in poverty. You still don't have that voice, you know, within the Labour Party. If you're doing the low status routine work um, or you're unemployed, you know, within London, the same as anywhere else, you, you're still missing. You're still working class. You might not be wearing a flat cap. You might never have done. You know, mm. it's not about that. It's not about cultural stereotypes. And I don't think it ever was. And those power inequalities, I think they're still there just as much as ever before, as I said, if not more. Going back to the Labour Party and in your experience of becoming more involved with the party, mm. what would you have liked to have seen 
to make it easier for working class people to become more involved in the Labour Party? I would like to have seen uh, from the top a an acknowledgement of this as a current issue, not as an issue of the past. I would like to have seen an acknowledgement of the decreasing engagement of, of working class people with politics and left politics in particular, and more of an analysis, an open analysis of why that's happened, what's, what's contributed to that, including through the Blair era. I think that the drive to unify people um, because we were under such attack really across the left at that point, um, even from within our own party, I think that the emphasis was let's choose things we can unite on and let's ignore Mm. the things that might be divisive. And I can kind of understand that rationale, but I think that we've paid a high price for that. Um, And there are certain practical things that we could have done. You know, we could have said, look, we're going to, within the confines of what the equalities legislation allows for, and that's different in England than it is in Scotland and Wales, because the Equalities Act does acknowledge socioeconomic deprivation, at least in um, Wales and Scotland. I think within the confines of what the law allows us to do, we're going to treat, you know, social class, socioeconomic deprivation class isn't just about money so class has to be in there as well we're going to treat it as an equalities issue the same as we do with all of the other sort of disadvantaged identity groups if you like Um, so that would mean things like where we've got socialist societies I mean at the moment well socialist societies basically buy a place at the table um, in terms of shaping policy and influencing the NEC and what have you through their mm. membership. So if your membership and the people that are setting up that socialist society have some money behind them, then you can buy yourself a bigger place at the table. It's fairly capitalist in how it's run mm. in that sense. If you're low income, stressed to hell, struggling to keep on top of your bills, you know, all the rest of it, you're not in a position to set up a society and the people that would benefit from it aren't in a position to pay subs. So you're excluded, you know, that that capitalist model excludes you from actually setting up a society to raise your exclusion issues, if you like, Mm. and to help people to have a growing recognition of them. So they could have done something practical around that, around recognizing that and supporting that and making sure that that wasn't at that sort of economic disadvantage and getting established. They could have working class officers. We've just got one in. um, Well, we haven't. We've just voted through a motion to create a working class officer role within our CLP. Mm. No one's been appointed to it yet, but I think we might be the first in the country to have done that. But that's something that could have come from the top. They could have put in place, you know, political education that prioritised people from class disempowered positions to lead them. So they could have trained people up and recruited people. Same as with their, you know, community. um, What was it? They had a community team. I think the Starmer leadership has, has got rid of that now or is in the process mm. of getting rid of it. But they had um, a team that was set up to get involved in local community projects so that Labour became more visible and relevant to people on low incomes, you know, on the ground. But they were run primarily, the, the people that they recruited, from what I could see, were middle class. Mm. So already, you know, you're not starting from the same cultural perspective. Yeah. Um, And that is not something that is wasted on working class people. They do. They are much more likely to put their faith and trust in someone who is speaking from the same cultural perspective and experience that they are struggling in, you know. So it's just really simple things like that Mm. um, that could have made a huge difference, really. 
And if we'd have had more influence on policy, if the working class had had more influence on policy and on the leadership, I'm not sure we would have changed the policy on Brexit, which which, which honoured you know, the, the democratic decision that had been made by the country. Mm. I mean, I voted Remain myself. I'm not sure that was the right way to vote now, having learned more um, mm. about the EU. But we could have potentially been in power through this pandemic now, you know, if, if, if not for that shift. Because I, I personally think that the working class rejected us. That was the final straw mm. in terms of the electorate, the working class electorate. And I think there's a lot of evidence to back that up. So I think we've paid a high price for not wanting to have that awkward conversation. Mm. There's so much to get into there. Um, just the talk of Brexit. Um, yeah. Have you read Despised by Paul Embury? No. I've, I've, yeah, I've heard of him, but I, mm-hmm. yeah. It's interesting. There's a, a, it's a bit iffy in some places, but it yeah. is about that idea of the working classes and their approach to Brexit. Yeah. and why they voted for Brexit. And it is mm-hmm. about this idea of feeling a loss of community. Yeah. And he goes into that detail of saying it's not about immigrants coming into these spaces. It is about the fact that there isn't the infrastructure to make sure that these people coming in feel a part of the community. They're sort of just dumped there. Yeah. And so it's a situation where there is this antagonistic opposition yeah. because of that. and. It is, uh, and then talking about the idea of having a presence, having a sense that politics is not something that is just viewed on the news, of being mm-hmm. able to say, oh, I know where my MP is. They're doing a coffee uh, morning at this point, so we can talk to them. Or yeah. they're engaging in this, out, in this project, this development project within the community. I think mm-hmm. that is something that is really lacking in a yeah. lot of politics today, is the idea that politics is not with a capital p it is something that is inherent to your everyday life mm-hmm. but it's not present or presented in such a way yeah that it is that yeah um, i'm shocked about the almost entry fee <laughs> aspect to um uh socialism organizations that they have yeah. to buy a seat at the table mm. That's I, I was when i learned about that because it's not these things aren't always made obvious you know mm. we've got this whole who has time to read read the way through the rule book and learn all of these intricacies yeah. you know it's only after a few <laughs> years of being involved you go all oh, right you know someone will mention something and you go hang on so you're saying <laughs> yeah <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> that, 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 that's how that works but um yeah so I've, I've put together a motion for conference this year Um, And I'm hoping to get that out through CLPD, the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, because they've been really supportive of a lot of the work that I've done around class. They don't agree with everything that I say, Mm. but they've been pretty supportive, more supportive than any other group, I think. And they um, so I've put that to them to see if they can get that out to their supporters. And that's really to try and level the playing field and recognise that it's undemocratic the way that it runs at the moment. And it excludes that group of voices. Who would know why they would write that into the rule book? But let's see if we can challenge it. Yeah, mm, definitely. Good yeah. luck. I mean, if you need any help, let me Thank know. You. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Going back to the class activist website, where would you want to see the website going in the future? Uh, I mean, I'm kind of limited. You know, I've done it as like a free platform. It's very, very basic. And I, it's like I said to you, I just wanted to, I ummed and ahed and thought, well, I, I don't know what I'm doing someone what what normally happens is if you work in class and you come up with a good idea someone who's got more money and resources normally 
ditches you out of the equation and does it better mm. <laughs> or does it in their own way yeah. and I thought well okay you know whatever I'll, I'll I'll start it it's not going to be perfect at some point it would be nice if there was some money behind it because I can't do things at the moment like I don't know I don't think there's a facility on the site to actually do you know where you have the little icons for Facebook Twitter and so on yeah embedded in it so that you can link all of that stuff together um, I know nothing about increasing my reach, you know, or anything like that. I'm just doing it organically through the networks that I've got. Hmm. You know, happily, I am friends with people that are, they've got a little, some of the people that I know, they've got a little bit of a profile themselves and they're helping me to push stuff out as well. But it's pretty small scale. Hmm. I'd like it to be bigger. I would like it to be a team. It's important that it's a team that that understands this, this the, the perspective of class that you and I have discussed here. You know, because as you said, there's a lot of confusion about class. And if it's a partial perspective that doesn't look at some of some of those really important areas like politics, academia, media, and how those things sh shape our society and how, how the working class have been sort of squeezed out of those. If it doesn't acknowledge that as a really, really important part of how we define what's important about class and why we need to tackle it, then I think um, it can't it can't really do the job it's meant to do. But there's so there's so many more things that I would like to do, and I'm limited in the time and the knowledge and expertise and the money that I have. I I need other people who who understand this, you know, um, thoroughly and feel passionate about it to sort of join with me and help me to to grow it. I want other people to be doing the interviews. I don't want to do them all. I want other people to put their writing on there, their music on there. You know, um, it's got to be. It's got to have some some gatekeepers, as I said, mm. so that we can make sure that we don't end up with a confused muddle that doesn't achieve anything. But I want some trusted people around me to, to help shape it and drive it forward. For people who might be interested in becoming part of this team, uh, what's yeah. the best way to reach out to you? My, um, well, the, the website is um, www.classactivist.com. Or you can look us up on Facebook. There's a Class Activist um, Facebook page now as well. We're on YouTube with the videos. Mm. Class Activist um, YouTube page yeah. as well. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't even talk about Praxis TV, but it's brilliant. Some really interesting conversations that are on that. And I'd recommend people go check them out as well. Mandy, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been oh. really interesting. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Aidan. And thanks for everything that you're doing as well. Not at all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that is the episode. I'd love to thank Mandy for coming on and talking to me today and for her work in building up the Class Activist website. To stay up to date on all new episodes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at WhatIsYourWork1 and on your chosen podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening and hopefully hear from me soon.